Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started during this work from home period, where we're interviewing leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're really trying to do during this SALT Talk series is to provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are uh, ideas that are shaping the future as well as interesting investment opportunities. And today we're very excited to welcome Michael Vranos to Salt Talks. Uh, Mike founded Ellington Management in December of 1994 to capitalize on distressed conditions in the mortgage-backed securities derivatives market. And he, he was involved in that market even before it was considered sort of a hedge fund asset class. Uh, until December of 1994, uh, Mike was the senior managing director of Kidder Peabody in charge of the RMBS trading division. Uh, Mike, when Mike was the head trader and the senior manager at Kidder Peabody, the uh, mortgage-backed securities department became a leader on Wall Street in CMO underwriting for each of the three years between 1991 and 1993. Uh, Mike began his Wall Street career in 1983 uh, after graduating magna cum laude Phi Beta, Kappa with, Phi Beta Kappa with a Bachelor of Arts in Mathematics from Harvard University. He currently serves on the board of directors of the Boys and Girls Club, uh, Hedge Fund Cares, or now called Help for Children, as well as the Waterside School. And he's an emeritus member of the board of the Stanford Shelter for the Homeless. So he's, he's very involved in the charitable side of the hedge fund industry as well. A reminder to our audience today, if you have any questions for Mike during today's talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And conducting today's interview is Troy Gajewski, who is the a co-chief investment officer and senior portfolio manager at Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. And uh, Troy is also a contributor to SALT. So Troy, thank you for joining us today. And I'll turn it over to you for the interview. Yeah, thanks, John. And Mike, it's really great to have you on here. And obviously, before we dive into market opportunities, which I know you're chomping at the bit to discuss, I just wanted to get a little more color on your background. I mean, it's a fascinating story how you came from you know, relatively humble roots, like many of us that have been on the screen, uh, to running one of the longest uh, or, or successfully running a hedge fund that's been in business uh, just about as long as any. And so if you could take us through you know, where you were born, how your school schooling progressed, and then how you made your way to Wall Street, that'd be fantastic. Oh, thanks. Okay, thank you, Troy. Sure. So um, I was born in Worcester, Mass. And when I was young, our family moved to a town called Ellington, Connecticut, hence the eponymously named firm. Um, and Ellington was in, to some extent, still is a farm town. Um, they grow shade tobacco there, which is uh, tobacco that wraps uh, cigars, uh, corn, and there was a lot of dairy back then too, dairy farming. Uh, my father was an engineer and my mother was a nurse. And when I was young, I just spent a lot of time outside and I played a lot of sports. I was a decent athlete and I got involved in bodybuilding in my late late teen years. And I got into Harvard, you know, I was okay in math and I spent a lot of time even at Harvard in the gym at school. And this is important because it had some bearing on my decision to go into business because um, I kind of liked being around people um, and studying and being isolated was not exactly that. And so I had written an undergraduate thesis uh, and was given a grant by the NSF to go to graduate school in math in Stanford. And at the very last minute, which is, you know, last minute meaning, let's say, April of my senior year before graduation, I decided that it would be better to 
quote unquote, go into business. But I didn't know what go into business meant. Um, I, I used to train with, with a fellow from <laughs> at the gym from uh, Harvard Business School. And he told me if I applied to jobs at Kidder Peabody, um, it would be great because the lunches were free and they were very good. And, uh, and if I was in sales and trading, I could be out by five o'clock and I could get to the gym. That like, sounded, did, they have, uh, did they have protein, protein shakes back then? Yeah, all the things they know, have today? Yeah, it was down at 10 Hanover Square and you could order out at the various places and things like that. It was, it was good, good 80s food back then. So um, I decided to do it. And I was offered two jobs at Kidder Peabody, the two openings. And one was in sales and trading and the other was in project and lease finance. But the latter was one where I'd have to work more hours, but it was 24,000 instead of 22,000 a year. So I went for the lower um, salary job because I could get out at five. This was my brilliant logic back then. Anyway, so I started at the Chicago Board of Trade and I ended up in New York by the fall of 1983. And I was supposed to be doing research in mortgages, but the traders stopped showing up to work and they just kind of threw me in the seat um, there I am, 22 years old, having to figure out everything myself. Um, there was no research group. It was pre-OAS. So the ideas of coupon compression and negative convexity, one had to sort of infer from the markets. Um, now, it's also important to realize back then that rates were very, very high, extraordinarily high. The current coupon mortgage rates had just dropped from 15% to 13.5%, and rates have been more or less dropping for the last 40 years. Um, and Kidder Peabody wasn't exactly Solomon Brothers. They ran the market uh, back then, and, but we built our group up slowly over time. And, and as John mentioned, by the early 90s, we became the largest CMO issuer on Wall Street, and our group became the firm's profit leaders. Um, we also produced back then a tremendous amount of mortgage-backed derivatives. And, um, and in the early 90s, we developed agent-based prepayment models that we still use today at Ellington to help us value these securities. And these models, they consider each borrower as an individual agent who makes an economic decision to prepay or default based on certain factors, economic factors. And these agents comprise a distribution that we track over time. And that's the basis for the model. Uh, anyway, um, so, Leaving Wall Street at the end of 94, and I'll get to the crisis of 94 later, um, it was a very good time because, uh, you know, the Fed had been ra raising rates precipitously uh, and mortgage-backed securities, especially derivatives, were highly undervalued. Uh, so as John mentioned, we formed Ellington in the last days of 1994. Although it's important to say that the seeds of the partnership were planted almost 50 years ago. Um, Larry Penn, who's our vice chairman and chief operating officer, was a fellow that, as a freshman I met at Harvard. Uh, and John Genacopoulos, our head of research, the well-known mathematical economist and James Tobin professor of economics at Yale, is my cousin. And of the five of the six original partners of Ellington, um, the five, I'm sorry, of the six original partners of Ellington, five, five are still with us today, 25 years later. So we're now a firm of 155 people. We manage about a billion, $11 billion across hedge funds, private debt, some long only and permanent, permanent capital vehicles in the forms of REITs uh, uh, that trade on the New York Stock Exchange 
EFC and EARN uh, are the tickers. Um, we write and use our own interest rate, prepayment, and default models for RMBS, CMBS, and corporates. And we've, as I mentioned, developed these models over decades. So um, that's, that's a little bit of my background. Um, I, can, I can talk a little bit about some of the crises I saw back then and how it applies to what we're seeing now, if you're interested. Yeah, of course, Mike. But before we get into that, the question everyone's dying to ask is, how much could you bench press back in the day? Oh, that's an interesting question. You know, um, Don't take too long to answer it, though. Be, be succinct, my man. OK, I'm going to be very honest with you. 395. Not bad. It's not it was bad okay. for a man in your stature. I, you never got, I never got to 400. Um, it was one of my worst lifts, by the way, the bench press. It wasn't yeah, what was your best one, the squat or the deadlift? Uh, probably, probably the squat, yeah. Squat, yeah. 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 Same here, man. That was always my, uh, my most powerful uh, movement. So good for you. I don't know that it's done me a lot of good now at this point, but, like, <laughs> but thanks for asking anyway. Um, so... <laughs> But segueing back to, to business, because I know you've okay. obviously been a huge uh, lifter your whole life. Um, but, yeah. you know, in terms of the crises you went through, you, you've touched upon, you know, the 94 crisis with asking, which was rate driven. You've obviously managed through long term capital, managed to the financial crisis. Just touch upon a few highlights and, you know, lessons learned or sure. some of the key the keys that allowed you to survive. And then once we get through that, I want to touch upon the longevity of your firm, because that's something that we feel people don't appreciate enough how difficult it is just to stay in business over time. Yeah. Um, so shoot on the crises lessons and some of the experiences there, and then we'll get into some of your keys to longevity. Okay. Yeah, sure. So with all these crises, we've tried every possible way to get out of business and it hasn't happened yet, but like there's plenty of mistakes made and there's a lot to learn. Um, and I think the first real stark sort of learning experience and example was the crisis of 94 to which you alluded, which is the precipitous rise in rates uh, starting in the early spring of 94. And it's really important to realize back then, the Fed was secretive about their plans. They, they prided themselves in being sort of opaque uh, with their plans. And they tightened and raised rates seven times, pushing LIBOR from three to 6% over the course of the year in less than a year. And this was a total disaster for MBS derivatives, which were these highly leveraged securities that carried durations of at least 20 years, sometimes 30 years, with negative convexity as well. So a lot of real money accounts lost money back then, like, uh, like uh, mutual funds and things like that. But uh, there was one hedge fund in particular, and there weren't many back then by the name of Askin Capital that had these securities levered as well. And that was my first experience in seeing the deadly effects of the combination of leverage and miscalculation of risk. And the two sort of worked together. They conspired to create a disaster. Um, and, um, and also sort of the rapaciousness of, of lenders at the time. You know, there, there was not a big idea of forbearance back then. And I think in the COVID crisis now, I can see anecdotally, I thought lenders acted more nobly than they had back then in the 90s. Um, that's been my observation. Um, uh, the, anyway, so then, and then there was, as you alluded to, the, the crisis of 1998, the LTCM crisis. And that was also very interesting. And that was a crisis of leverage. Um, and that was um, 
rather specific to hedge funds, unlike the great financial crisis. Um, and if I recall correctly, and someone in the audience might know better than I and can check my memory, but like they sent out, long-term capital sent out a letter on July 31st of uh, 1998 stating that they were down 51%. And I think that was the number. So I found that to be incredibly odd because it being down 50%, given that kind of leverage was akin to saying, okay, like, I've got the edge of this dime and I'm going to put it on the edge of this razor blade and it's going to balance. And that's just not a, an equilibrium point for a levered fund. And so something was going to have to get, either they're going to recover or, or blow up. And, um, and we know what happened, but the aftermath of that was that a certain, you know, an unnamed prime broker was making very aggressive margin calls to, to Ellington and other hedge funds at the time, trying to break, term financing even before maturity. And we had a lot of term financing out. And I think they were just made the calculation they'd rather take legal risk than market risk. And they were just looking for, for margin to just to blow out um, all their borrowers. So from that, um, I learned three important lessons. Uh, one is not to trust anybody. Um, uh, two is to keep more cash on hand than you otherwise would think to, to anticipate the panic of others. And three is don't let your prime broker hold your money. Um, a prime broker can hold up your trades and cause fails to others. So you can use prime brokers and we use prime brokers, but they shouldn't control your money. You should be your own prime broker and that's not easy. That's why at Ellington we have so much infrastructure because you need to develop great systems and risk management to hold your cash but, but I think it's just, I think it's crucial. Yeah, it would also be fair to say having low leverage, right? That was a lesson from both 94 and 98, correct? Absolutely. Well, that becomes, that becomes sort of a, a follow-on from, you work backwards from there. You have to figure out how much cash you need in these scenarios, and that governs your leverage. Mm -hmm. So it's, 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 it's a sort of, that's, that's the flow of logic. And obviously, many of those lessons helped you survive the financial crisis and then also help mitigate losses in March as well. So yeah. there's been much discussion on you know the financial crisis. I thought you, you touched upon LTCM in 94, which seems like you know eons ago, uh, was, was very informative. But why don't we segue to uh, March and how you were able to mitigate losses compared to many of your peers? Okay, so March was interesting. So... Um, you know, that was, um, you know, that was a time where that was obviously a crisis of leveraging cash as well. Um, and um, it has to do with managing, again, left tail risk. So what we've done internally is we had uh, and have a lot of what if scenarios. Um, for example, what if high yield goes down 10%? What if high yield goes down 15%? What happens to RMBS, CMBS, and corporates, particularly mezzanine tranches that carry a little extra interest rate, but whose delta will expand tremendously. Um, you know, so negative credit convexity, if you will, uh, in scenarios that I've described to you. And then on top of that, what happens when that happens to haircuts? Um, and um, that is, those are the sort of what ifs and scenarios that we had run you know, starting actually since 2008 and even before, 
that helped us sort of survive and actually put money to work um, in, uh, in, in after, after the March crisis of this year. Um, I also think it's, you can't underestimate the importance of having the right kind of investors so that when you call them, they come alongside because the amount of money that you might husband for this sort of situation isn't nearly as impactful as if you have uh, investors that are willing to come along with you. Um, and so, you know, if you would allow, if you could indulge me for a second, I need to get on my soapbox about this one issue with investors because, um, you know, although we at Ellington manage both hedge fund and PE style capital, I believe investors should perhaps take a slightly more charitable uh, view toward the hedge fund structure. Um, we should all keep in mind that hedge fund investors own a put. They can take the cash and put the securities back to the manager at any time, oftentimes in inopportune times. And they can do this because they may have their own liquidity needs or see better opportunities elsewhere. So as a hedge fund manager, you need to manage that put as well. And that's a drag on returns, quite frankly. Alternatively, private equity, they have a call on cash. That's a drag on investor returns and that accrues positively to them. So we are actually uh, here at Ellington in active discussions with some pension allocators, uh, you know, that we sort of like, who owns that put and what's the value of that worth, uh, PE versus, versus hedge fund. Um, and I think it's an interesting separate topic of discussion. But anyway, I'm digressing a bit, but the point is that if you have clients that you can call, even if you're a hedge fund in a crisis, you can ameliorate this problem. And that's one of the ways that we put about 3 billion to work um, in April and May, after, you know, once the crisis hit. Um, but again, you know, you have to be really, you're forced to be really fastidious about managing this left tail risk and the liquidity so that you can buy and not sell in a crisis. And, you know, that includes not just putting aside capital, but effectively credit hedging, effectively having robust models that will tell you more or less where you think your assets will be in a big move. I mean, keep in mind, the high yield index moved 20% in a very short amount of time. It was, so you, even our, in our risk scenarios, we needed to extrapolate a bit. We had down 10 and down 15 to some degree. So yeah, uh, Mike, before yeah. we get into, uh, you know, the key opportunities today, I think you touched upon two key points that have led to your longevity. One is obviously a culture of risk management. Two is having a client base that knows when there's a buying opportunity and isn't selling bottoms repeatedly, which is a you know recipe for disaster in any strategy. Um, so those are two uh, keys that I think that have led to your success. Are there th uh, several others that you'd like to mention that have led to just the longevity? Well, I do think modeling, modeling risk is very important. Like I can't uh, emphasize that enough because, um, you know, um, you really have to, fly the plan, you know, um, you're gonna at times, it's like you're a pilot on instrument rating at times because, you know, we've seen times where um, certain mezzanine CLO tranches, for example, that we thought were had the risk of a, up, let's say of a high yield index when it was at 108, going to maybe four times the risk of the high yield index when the high yield index was 15 points lower. I don't even know that the PM believed it, but it was true. And so, um, 
so you know you need to modeling modeling is really really important um, to get the risks right at various times not just now because it's one thing to model um, you know risks local risks it's another thing to model risks for big moves and it's not so easy especially with moves that you haven't seen before there's no way to know, to know that you're going to be uh, exactly right you know uh, another thing I think is, and it's obviously no small feat to get investors to come along with you. Um, investors have their own stresses at these times, A. And B, I think even when an investor is looking to invest with you, and we've been around for 25 years and we're easy to check out and all that, sometimes it takes months or even years and then the opportunity's gone. I think it's almost a little crazy sometimes. I understand how we got to that point in, in this industry. But, it, but I think it can hamstring investors at times too. And that's a separate issue. Anyway, so. Right, so definitely a culture of strong risk management, having clients that will stick with you in drawdowns and actually add capital are very key. And, you know, it's very interesting you bring up the point of doing your in-house modeling, right? Which I think is the key to all success for investors is that they're not relying upon third parties to provide them with information sources. They're taking the raw data and actually compiling, you know, outputs that make rational sense for informed decision-making. You'd agree with that, right, Mike? I do agree with that. Okay. I also think there's some great independent research that goes on out there. And, you know, you don't want to have the hubris to think you have all the answers and things, but in the end, you need to control your own data set. You need to know what's going into the cooking, if you will. Um, so um, I, th I think it's very important. It's, it's, it's expensive to do that, by the way. Um, you know, of our 155 people, you know, roughly a third or so or more are somehow, you know, investment professionals of a high order, right? So the way we do things at Ellington, it's a very collaborative environment. So we have the, the PM and the assistant PM and the desk analyst and the researcher all sitting together. Um, they're all part of a team, you know? Um, but, uh, you know, any break in that chain can be tough. You know, if you're looking at some point, if you're just relying on an outside vendor, maybe that particular chain might not be necessary. Um, but that's just not the way that we've chosen to do things. So, Mike, let's segue into today's opportunities. Obviously, there's still uh, areas of dislocation and structured credit. You know, there's a lot of uh, discussion on where prepayment speeds are going to be in a go-forward right. basis. Um, so touch upon some of the favorite areas that you see for, you know, opportunities in the next 6, 12, 18 months. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. So basically, um, there's two general sets of opportunities, and this is like a very, almost a dumb statement, but like, the, you know, there are the fundamental value investments, and then there's relative value trades, let's say. And, um, you know, the Fed has really engineered a broad tightening of almost all assets, right? So I think going blindly long is probably not the best prescription right now. And it is harder to find fundamental, uh, fundamental value investments, but they do exist. Um, and I think, um, I think one is in non-agency mortgages still. And I'll, I can go into a little bit of detail about that if you'd like, but like if you look and see, well, so what was the provenance of the opportunity was again, this you know, massive, selling of these assets on Sunday, basically, uh, of, uh, in March, on March 22nd by REITs. Leading up to that, you would seen a lot of uh, same-day selling from really well-known 
long only managers leading up to that week you know, looking to raise cash. So this was, you know, a cash grab. Um, and the selling by the time that week ended was rather indiscriminate. It was a selling of all structured products, but mostly legacy non-agency mortgages and later on uh, NPL and RPL mortgages. But unlike 2008, like I said, mortgages were not the cause of this problem and the selling them was not going to be the solution. I believe that was a, a big technical move and that there's a lot of value. Um, so what's happened since then and why do I think that? Well, there's technical and fundamental reasons why I think that. First of all is like in response to what happened, and maybe everyone knows this, but like it's really important to say nonetheless that the Fed has had tremendous impact on the mortgage market and structured products. They've increased their holdings net of paydowns, and you mentioned prepayments, Troy. So net of paydowns, that's not a small fee of, uh, of 600 billion. And so now they own 2 trillion of mortgages, which is like 30% of the $6.7 trillion uh, pass-through market, okay? Yes, again, of agency pass-throughs, right, Mike? Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you want to specify for people. Yeah, agency pass-throughs, exactly. And their balance sheet has increased 2.7 trillion since March. So it's the rising tide is the lifting almost all boats at this point. Um, and this is a substantially faster increase in balance sheet than other of the, uh, of the QE programs. So, so that, so there's a lot of, you know, technical support, let's say for this market. And, and so what's going on right now in non-agency RMBS? So first of all, from a fundamental standpoint, the housing market right now is incredibly strong, which is a positive for these securities. Um, there's very little downside, I believe in legacy non-agency securities right now because of the low LTV. So the legacy RMBS, House price appreciation adjusted LTVs right now are 50% or less, meaning that for a typical borrower, the loan value is only about half, the outstanding loan value is only about half the value of the house itself. Um, and these loans on average have been in existence for 15 years and they were being paid through during the uh, great financial crisis or have been rehabilitated and such. And we can still source that product uh, outside of 250 basis points, sometimes as wide as 300. Also sort of as a cousin to those securities, um, we've sourced some interesting bonds recently uh, that have been subordinate tranches off of uh, reperforming deals at 500 basis points to LIBOR. Um, and each of these types of securities are really insensitive to delinquencies. And I think you'll see that the uh, the delinquencies in that market are quite high. They're probably like 18% or something like that. But even if you were to double those delinquencies and take into account what the, uh, what the existing defaults would be, you know, CDR is almost at 20 and such like that, you'd still get your capital back and you'd probably get, you know, a decent spread to LIBOR is what we calculate in many cases, 200 to LIBOR. So it's a great risk reward. Uh, and that's, you know, with the backdrop of the Fed and the backdrop of the strong housing. And I mean, housing's just really been incredibly strong, Troy. Um, you've got house prices uh, went up a lot in July. I think it's like 25% month over month in July. And they're up eight and a half percent on annualized, annualized, annualized. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> That's quite a move. <laughs> right. But eight and a half percent since since January, I believe. Oh, it's, it's so, incredible. Yeah. It's a big, yeah, big jump in July. Um, 
and supply is very tight also. Um, the, um, right now we have the lowest July supply, if you measure by month, uh, of housing, of, of inventory in housing since it's been measured in 1982, going back to 1982. So um, these are really great fundamental and technical uh, support uh, uh, for uh, non-agency non -agency mortgages. Yeah, so Mike, that's a great summary of the opportunity and legacy RMS. You want to talk briefly about the non-QM market because that's yeah. a, another area of opportunity you're seeing. Sure. So um, the non-QM market, and this ties into REITs because I think the second, you know, the non-QM, it, it, it is an investable market. It's not as nearly as big as these other markets, but I do, do believe there's an indirect way to get exposure to these markets also through REITs. But nonetheless, let me talk about non-QM and then tell you about different ways to access that market. Um, because a lot of the value in non-QM goes through the securitization from origination through the securitization chain. Um, but not, the non-QM market is, uh, you know, consists of borrowers who have over 700 FICO that are making healthy down payments. So these are 75 LTV borrowers. Um, who are paying coupons close to 6% right now, which is double that of an agency mortgage and more than 500 basis points over, uh, over the 10-year treasury. So you can imagine that there's an incredible value in that chain. In amortizing securities too, right, Mike? Yeah, amortizing 30-year security. So it's almost a little crazy. Um, so anyway, and what's interesting to me is that if you look at REITs, in particular REITs, that house originators, they seem to be the ones, to me, they seem to be the most undervalued. So they're owning that supply chain and that securitization, those securitization profits, and they're being valued in many cases at 60% price to book. And I think, you know, if you look at the REIT market in general, and that's why I think it's, a, it's an indirect exposure, if you will, but I still think it's, it's something to talk about because you know, the backdrop is what just happened with Rocket. You know, I don't know, where did Rocket come at? You know, 20 times earnings or something like that. And most REITs are owning their own originators about one time earnings. And I understand these originators aren't Rocket, but there's a big chasm there, if you will. So if you look at the $1 billion uh, uh, ET, uh, REIT ETF, REM, right now, that's down 40% almost year to date. But almost like 62% of the of the constituents of that REIT are um, are RMBS type hybrid RMBS REITs. So you've got these REITs that have mostly exposure to uh, <clears throat> to you know residential mortgages that are comprising this index that's down a lot on the year. Okay, so you could say should it be or shouldn't be, but the average price to book that we find of the 10 hybrid REITs that we follow is around 70%. So I believe you can buy today's assets at last month's prices or two months ago's prices by getting into some of these REITs. And again, with the REITs with the originator arms, the price to book is even lower. Um, and you wanna look for these REITs that are functioning now, like Ellington Financial, for example, that are taking advantage of this origination and refinancing boom that's going on right now. And then, Mike, really quick before we turn it over to John for questions from the audience, just want to get your thoughts really quick on CMBS as well as CLOs, because that's another area. Yeah. Both yeah. of those sectors you're very active in. 
Sure. So that's actually dovetails with what I think is the second set of opportunities, which is more relative value, because um, there, there are some headwinds in the corporate and CMBS market. That's obvious. But um, there's also some very good news. Like in CMBS, for example, Troy, it's important to realize that that market's blessed with great hedging indices. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's substantial relative value opportunities with CMBX hedges that exist right now. And there's some pretty wide bases just between cash and, and the index itself, sometimes as wide as 250 basis points. Um, also, a lot of the marginal dollars left that market. Um, a lot of hedge funds can't participate anymore. And so we recently committed to buying a first loss B strip at a very attractive level. It's way more 300 basis points wider than, than pre-COVID. Um, and we were also able to shape the collateral pool, which is really important. And that, you know, that brought it, uh, the, uh, that strip to us at meaningfully wide spreads outside of 17% 17 no loss. Those are like generally zero to eight or zero to seven and a half strips. Um, so we see opportunity there in the basis. In and Mike, what do you think that is loss adjusted with the cleaner collateral, like 12, 15? Um, so um, that's a complicated question because generally um, it's not a question of, I don't know ultimately what the losses will be. It's the timing of the losses that matter most. We generally uh, look to sell off the mezzanine tranches and own equity in those particular cases. And so knowing that we don't, value the principal part of the equity very high, but that we value the interest payments rather high because we feel that, you know, there'll be um, an attenuation of losses, but ultimately it's very possible to have these high single digit losses. I, I do think it's possible without a doubt. Um, but that's why, again, I espouse more of a relative value approach to these markets. Um, the same thing, in, same thing in CLOs, for example. Um, do you have any other questions about CMBS? No, I think it's great if we jump to CLOs. Yeah, so, so for CLOs, again, it's the same idea. Um, the legacy CLO market right now is all over the place. Um, tier one managers with on-the-run bonds are really enjoying some pretty good execution on their collateral. But like for other managers, especially where you've got, uh, you know, shorter to maturity, deleveraged structures out of the reinvestment period, Sometimes the price discovery is horrible. And, you know, there's a lot of negative price pressure there. I think some for selling and we're able to buy delevering post reinvestment CLOs like 20 attached, 40 detached at 750 to live live or unlevered. And these things have a 115% NBOC. So they're, they're covered for now. Um, it would take an extreme stress for uh, the high yield index to, to, for that tranche to take a loss tranche like that. So hedging with the high yield index on a sort of a collection of those types of securities, we think that's a great relative value trade. Yeah, so that, that's a great way to end our, our segment and turn over to John. I got a new nickname for you though, Mike. It's 395 Mike. <laughs> you like the sound of that? I like 400, that. 400 sounds better. Before, but, come on, man. I like I how you kept it real and kept it honest. Yeah, right? I'm not going to be honest. Five pounds. Not going to round up. Nope. <laughs> Good man. So John, why don't you take it away with uh, questions from the audience, okay? All right, we, we have a few in the queue here. If you have additional questions, uh, please submit them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen, and we'll try to get them in before we let Mike go. The first question is just about technicals in the, the mortgage-backed securities market and whether you think 
there will continue to be a recovery through the end of the year or you know, what risk factors you're looking at uh, for a potential pause in the recovery in those markets? So um, the latter part of the question is the best part. And, you know, like um, there are things um, that one needs to be concerned about as you see this slow recovery in, in, resi in residential non-agency. I, I, I assume the question's about non-agency. With agency, you've had a massive recovery because the feds bought everything, right? Yep. So um, you know that the, um, the CARES Act, which is providing for this enhanced income, sorry, I'm moving around, um, is, uh, has really basically expired in July 31st and only a few states I think have adopted taking up these payments. So um, you will see, um, you will see I think rising delinquencies which will cause people to stop, investors to pause. And um, you know, it was sort of uh, counterintuitive but lower balance loans have a better pay stream track record over the, since the COVID crisis than higher balance, precisely because of the in, enhanced income benefits from the, from the government. And when that goes away, you're gonna see that reversal. And our extrapolation is that you will see much higher, uh, you know, much higher delinquencies. Nonetheless, it shouldn't affect the ultimate prepayment uh, of principal to the securities. But that will cause a pause, no doubt. The other thing is that, um, you know, there hasn't been a real backfilling of, of collateral to the marginal dollar, like, like say in hedge funds that normally buy these. Um, and I, and I, I'm thinking that um, real and long only managers, real money and long only managers will pick up the slack a bit, but that, that could take time and it might not happen. It might not happen at all or right away. Thank you for that. The next question is, uh, given your experience firsthand with the CLO, CDO, and CMO dislocations in 94 and 98, as you explained earlier, what lessons are you taking from the first quarter and second quarter of this year in 2020 of how certain large credit shops uh, ran their models, ran their leverage, or ran their business platforms? Um, you know, history just tends to repeat itself when it comes to leverage. It's just amazing. Um, and I do believe that um, what led up to it was, I mean, there, you know, I, well, I wouldn't say excusable, but somewhat understandable what happened is that um, there was just such a fight for yield for so many years. And credit had almost monotonically, um, you know, gotten better since 08. And there've been some hiccups without a doubt, 2018 and late 2015, but every time that that happened, that those hiccups happened, you were rewarded to take more risk. And it just added to it. And then you saw volatility go down as, you know, people started to like look for yield that way by selling covered calls and all that. And when you sell volatility to somebody who has nothing to do with it, you actually make volatility go down more. And so the market kept grinding into this, you know, pick up, you know, pennies in front of the steamroller thing. And it was, it was just bound to happen at some point. Who knew it would be this and something else? So you just really do need to keep that cash aside. I guess that's it. It's a, sort of a repeat of what I said. Yeah. What are your thoughts on inflation on the RMBS market? And are you modeling any inflation risk into your models? We don't uh, right now model anything other than what would be, I would say, is rather benign inflation. Um, I do understand that things have changed recently. Um, 
we can, I haven't reviewed any models recently, um, you know, in terms of what the Fed has mentioned that we, um, I haven't really reviewed any models that would take into account any significant difference from what we've had recently. I mean, inflation in general does tend to help, does tend to help a lot of these uh, assets that we're talking about. Do you see an opportunity in hotel CMBS and similar uh, types of asset classes? I don't know. I'd have to talk to my PM. Um, I don't have a strong opinion about that. Um, I will say one thing that um, a lot of people, you know, the market is tends to be somewhat backward looking and even, you know, someone in your audience asked the question about um, what could cause a pause or a problem. I think all of us here need to acknowledge that, you know, the more subtle and long drawn out disaster scenario is that real returns go negative. And you're sort of alluding to that in your question. And that when the Fed has bought so much paper right. um, and with inflation on the other end outpacing the yield of the, these securities, that it could be a slow death and it's tough, especially for pensions and others. And that's a, that's a big concern. I want to finish with a question about your philanthropic work, which I know is near and dear to your heart. You're one of the most active philanthropists on Wall Street. You uh, help lead the Help for Children organization, used to be called Hedge Fund Cares. Could you talk about a few of the causes that are most important to you and, and the most satisfying part of all that philanthropy that you do? Sure. So there's, a, uh, there's an intersection of philanthropy and science. Um, the, for me, that's very interesting. You know, I believe that we're going through a... Uh, sort of a renaissance in the life sciences right now akin to, akin to what we went through in, in tech many years ago. And that you're seeing this happening now with uh, different forms of re, you know, stem cell research, for example, I'm a big supporter of different uh, kinds of stem cell research um, you know, um, initiatives. Um, also um, certain neurological diseases uh, that may or may not have to do with uh, with stem cell uh, research, um, the effect of the gut microbiome on on diseases too, you know, what we eat, things like that, I think are really important. Um, and it's more important to me than personally than whether my phone works better or 5G or something like that. It's how are we gonna live healthy for the rest of our lives? And I think it's very important. And, and I think we're gonna see great strides, probably after I die, of course, but like see great strides in that in, in that area. I'm very excited about that. Well, you look great. You, you said your, your girlfriend gave you your haircut, but she did a fantastic job. So, so oh. thanks so much for joining us, Mike. Uh, it was great to have sort of this long form uh, format to be able to talk to you about all your experience, which I think is fascinating. Troy, do you have a final word for Mike? No, Mike, it was great to have you on. And again, I think compliments to just the, the breadth and depth of your experience. And again, I keep saying the word longevity, but you know, having invested in hedge funds for uh, close to 20 years now, it's hard to stay in business over a long period of time. And some of the, you know, most well-known managers as recently as five years ago are no longer in business. So, you know, compliments to you and your team for doing that for so long. Thank you, Troy. And thanks for the opportunity to speak today.